some of us remember that we've been here a while, that Communion Sunday at this church used to be known as uh, Cinnamon Roll Sunday. Uh, it's, it's no laughing matter. <laughs> the fact that it's no longer referred to that is actually upsetting to me. Uh, so Jessica Beccarini, a former member here, uh, would create these homemade cinnamon rolls. And, they, and then, like, that's not enough. But like just before the end of the service, like during my sermon, she would bake them and warm them in this, uh, the oven in the kitchen. And so uh, all this, this, this beautiful, fragrant, exquisite aroma of sugar, butter, spice would, would co-mingle and, and then waft into the sanctuary. And like a true John Denver song, fill up our senses. I mean, those that were asleep, put a slumber by my sleep would be awakened by this majestic heavenly smell. It was truly a great moment. I would end my sermon quickly as soon as I sensed that. Because, listen, we're getting to those. And, and that's right after the service. We, you know, we haven't had this for a while, but we'd have this coffee hour fellowship with all these, uh, this banquet hour. And it was cinnamon rolls. And she wouldn't, like, it's not just the cinnamon rolls. She would make different type of frostings for all different uh, di uh, diabetic and dietary needs. Like, you know, gluten-free, sugar-free. I'm like, what is going on? This is what heaven is, like a banquet of cinnamon rolls. Oh, man. And then she moved, and we lost it all. Look, but here's the thing. All of our minds would suddenly crave and hunger for cinnamon rolls. And this wasn't, it's not an imaginary or false hunger or craving, right? It's, it's a sincere desire that rose up in us because we had experienced the cinnamon rolls. And when you experience the cinnamon rolls, you associate the smell with that. And so when you have the smell again, it's not like you have a false craving. <laughs> That's a real craving that you want to satisfy. That is true. It's not imaginary. It's not made up. We had encountered the real thing. And the effect of the smell was to remind us of that encounter and of the experience of the real thing. So we craved and desired cinnamon rolls. We wanted them. What do you desire? What do you want right now? Cinnamon rolls, right? <laughs> now that I've described them, so do I. But what do we desire day in and day out? C.S. Lewis says this in his sermon on the weight of glory. He says, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, and he probably would have added cinnamon rolls, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. What C.S. Lewis is getting at is that our desires for God are not strong enough, they're broken. At best, they're half-hearted. 
we have this, we have this phrase in, in, in Reformed theology, total depravity, or, or radically depraved. And this is what we mean by this, that you and I are completely broken. And man, we underestimate that brokenness significantly. Like you can say, yeah, I get it. I'm completely broken. No, you have no idea. And I think the journey with God is begins to reveal that brokenness and the depravity that in us more and more and more. And we underestimate it in the world, in ourselves, and in other people. And here's what it means. Our ability, everything about us, our ability to choose correctly is broken. Your chooser is broken. We make choices all the time. And here's the thing. Jonathan Edwards really hit home on this. We always choose what we most desire. It's how, it's how our chooser works. That's a technical term, by the way. Chooser. We, whatever we most desire, that most, the problem is a lot of us are... are does our desires are broken, and so we choose incorrectly, or we make, and some of us, we look at other people and make, man, they made a really bad choice. The problem is, is their desire was choke, choke, broken. They didn't know better, so they made a choice. You and I always make the choice that we most desire, and it's broken. Our desires are broken. Our desires are fallen. Our desires are distorted. Romans 3, 10 through 11, Paul gets at this, and he's, he's quoting a, a psalm. Not, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Why? Because they don't desire him. They desire something else. God is in the desiring, correcting, desiring, fixing business. This is what he needs to do in each and every one of us. And he promises, look, at, I know I need to give these people a new heart. And I need to give them my spirit. Look, at, I know. And that's what he promises to do. And that's what he does. He begins to work from the very deep core of who we are. He works at our heart. And when, when the scriptures talk about heart, in our culture, we talk about heart and we think about, oh, it's emotions, right? We have the symbol of heart for Valentine. It's emotion and expression or love. But here's when scripture talks about heart, it means in ancient Eastern culture, it's the center of your intellect, the center of your passions, your will, your, it's like it's everything, the center of everything about you. That's what it's referring to your heart. So your emotions as well, but your intellect, your desire, your will. And God says like, that is broken. Meaning you are broken. Everything deep down inside you. And I'm in the business to fix this. I'm going to give you a heart that's alive, not dead, because your heart is dead. The Gospel of John has made clear that Jesus doesn't trust the hearts of men, does he? Because he knows them. It stated it clearly. We said it over and over again in chapter 2. Jesus doesn't trust the hearts because he knows it, and he knows our desires are broken. And the miracles and signs that throughout the Gospel of John have proved this point over and over again. The desires of the people are broken. And just the feeding of the 5,000, which we read last week, the crowd doesn't desire Jesus. They don't desire God. They're seeking healing. They're seeking uh, the Jesus that they want, a Jesus in their own image, a Jesus that might will free them from the Roman oppression, 
They're free, they give them autonomy, independence. They'll give them to perceive the freedom that they think they need. You get the point of C.S. Lewis's comment. Like, those are probably good things. But those are the lesser things. That's, that's the, the have-heartedness. Like, yeah, God's like, that's, not the, that's good. Independence, freedom, those are not bad things. That's not the thing that really needs to happen. Jesus knows this. What really needs to happen is in each and every one of us, your heart needs to be freed from the captivity of sin and brokenness. It needs to be freed from death. Jesus knows that our desires, he knows that they are broken and he knows that we seek the lesser things. He knows we are broken. I want you to hear that very clearly. Jesus knows that you are utterly, completely broken. Jesus knows every brokenness about you and every sin. More than that, he knows all the ones that you will do. But he knows that your desires are not for him. And Jesus is offering us the abundant, everlasting life. And it begins with a new heart. It's a life beyond our imagination and beyond our, our the way we can think about freedom, beyond our con- current desires. The previous interaction with the, the Jesus with the crowd was focused on all the crowds and their need and their brokenness, right? And Jesus is testing them and he's revealing, we talked about last week, that he's revealing that I am God. I am king. Not the way you think. I'm going to try to help you understand who God is. And he provided a, a miraculous meal to show them in the wilderness. I mean, you begin, and they connected. He's, he's like Moses. He's like the one Moses prophesied. And you begin to see like, yeah, Jesus is like Moses because Moses is prefiguring Christ. Everything that's in the Old Testament, all the prophets, all the judges, in their brokenness, all of them and all the things that they do right are actually pointing to Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all men. So is Jesus the perfect fulfillment of Moses. And you can see, just like Moses fed the people in the wilderness through God's miraculous providing the manna, so Jesus provides a miraculous meal in the wilderness. Now the attention has moved squarely now on the apostles or disciples, and he's tested them in the miracle, right? And in this short passage about the walking on the water, here's what we see. We see three movements in Jesus' interaction with the apostles. The first one that you see is Jesus and the apostles are apart. They're separated. There is a distance between them. And the next thing you know, you see Jesus now appears before the disciples. He reveals himself. He shows himself to the disciples. And the last thing you see is that actually the, the apostle, they receive Jesus. They embrace him. They come to him. Right, we are apart. Jesus reveals. And then we can receive. Let's take a look. In John 6, 16 through 18. Jesus is apart and he's separated from the disciples. Or shall we say the disciples are separated and apart from Jesus. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough and became a strong wind and was blowing. 
the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, right? You remember they, they tried to make Jesus the king that they wanted. Like, yes, he's going to be the king that overthrows Rome. He's the one that's going to establish this kingdom here and now, and we're going to be free. What does Jesus do? He withdraws. He withdraws. That's, what, that's the last thing we heard last week. He withdraws and removes himself from all of them, from the apostles, from the disciples, from all the crowd of 10,000 plus. Mark provides more of the details of this than John does. And Mark 6, 46 says, And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. So Jesus went farther up the mountain and isolated himself to really, what, what would he do to pray? To be with his father. It's like, I just need some alone time from these people. These people are crazy. These people are, I'm taking my own time. As he goes up and takes a long time with the father to pray. What does happen? The disciples go in the opposite direction. They go down the mountain to the boat, to the sea. It's an intentional movement. Matthew makes it actually clear right, that, that Jesus actually tells them, you, get into the boats and get into the sea. He directs them. He makes it very clear. The idea that there is intentionally that there is separation. Jesus is like, I need to be separated right here now. And he's, the, the text is saying like, there is separation physically and spiritually from these people. Mark 6, 52 says, for the apostles, they did not understand about the loaves in the feeding of the 5,000, but their hearts were hardened. There's a physical distance and there is a spiritual distance because their hearts are hardened to Jesus. Their desires are broken. But they don't see it correctly. They don't have the, the, the spiritual eyesight that Jesus provided for them yet. And so there's that symbolism in here. Jesus is beginning to reveal who he is. That he is God. That he is king. That he is provider. Right? That word providence. That he is the provision. That he is the providence. But he's also revealing... To, He's revealing all this to a people that have their own ideas of what, who God is, of who the king's going to be, of what, who's going to provide for them, and what the provision's going to be. Man, that sounds a lot like me. Maybe it sounds like you too. I got lots of ideas of who I think God should be, and how he should provide, and what the provision he should provide for me. Right now, I'm still thinking that God should provide cinnamon rolls for me after the service. I'm going to get over it, though. But it's beyond just a separation that's revealed in the Scripture. There's right. John provides a detail that he often does, and he provides darkness. It's at night. It's, it's in the dark. He's used, he, John uses physical darkness as a metaphor for spiritual darkness, just as he does in chapter 3 when Nicodemus, the Pharisee, approaches Jesus at night, in the dark. And it, it's a good thing. Nic Nicodemus is doing a good thing. He's, he's like curious about Jesus. Like, man, I know, I know you're a teacher beyond all. Like, this has to come from God. But what does Jesus say? Like, hey, Nicodemus, don't approach me at night. You want to come follow me? Come follow me in the light. Come follow me in front of everyone. Right? So it's a good challenge by Jesus. But it's a symbolism that Nicodemus is still in the dark, just as the Apostles are still in the dark. And then we get this description that during the night, at journey at night, the sea becomes rough and strong wind was against them. And now this is not unheard of the Sea of Galilee. 
Isn't that how life is? Isn't this a truth of life? This is the truth that I have discovered, and uh, that this is this is, and I think most of us have discovered here, right? That life gets harder and more complicated the older you are. It, I mean, as, as a kid, a perspective like, man, I just need to get older, and life's going to be more simple, and I get more independence and freedom. But man, stay young. <laughs> Right, like it just it gets it gets harder and more complicated. I'm not saying there's not more joy, or can't be joyful. I'm just saying it just there's more responsibilities and things just get messy. And I think part of that is our brokenness as well too. But here's the thing that I also know: storms and tough times hit every one of us. Some of you are in a storm right now. Sometimes we may know it. Some of us are praying for you. Some of you might be in a storm right now and no one knows it. It's a difficult time. It's a terrible circumstance. Some of us have been in storms. And we're on the other side of that now. But here's the thing we know. There's another storm coming. Right? And and that's where a lot of us, right, for some of us, there's a storm that's imminent for us. And if you read the other Gospels, right, it's, right, it's, or you read Matthew, right, he tells, Jesus tells them, you're going to the sea. He tells them to go to the sea. He tells them to get in the boat. He tells them to row across without them. He knows the storm's coming. He leads them right into that. Can you, can you, can you trust Jesus in this? That he's leading you into the storms of this world? I mean, I don't want to say he's responsible for those storms, right? Our brokenness, our sin, like, let's not underestimate how that is the responsibility of the storms that are for us and against us and for other people. That we're responsible for this. But he leads us in it. Why? He's teaching us something. He's testing us. Just like he tested the apostles in the, in the feeding of the 5,000. I'm teaching you, do you trust in me? Do you know who I am? Do you know that this storm is nothing for me? And right, so the thing about storms in our life, the thing about difficult circumstance, that we have to spend a lot of extra energy in those moments, don't we? Physical, spiritual, emotional energies, and, and our, our energy zeroes in on that moment. And I'm not saying that's inappropriate, because I think it's just what has to happen at those moments is that we focus, but sometimes we zero in so far that we just, we think about the circumstance or we think about the storm and we forget that Jesus is present. Or we forget that he has carried us through other storms. And we forget the promises of the storms and the promises that he will carry us through those storms. He never promised they wouldn't be storms. He promised he would be faithful. And when we're in those storms, it's hard to see beyond that circumstance of that moment. You're just surviving. And Jesus doesn't want you just to survive in storms. He wants you to thrive. He wants you to flourish in the midst of storms. And it doesn't make sense to me. And it probably doesn't make sense to you. We lose sight that Jesus is God and that he is the sovereign provider. The things about storms is that they can separate us from Jesus. Or they can 
further existing separation between us and Jesus. Between the life giver and the sustainer. It's not that Jesus is being separated. It's that we separate ourselves from him. And that's the movement in our lives. Because we forget. Storms can separate us. Because we zero in on the storm. But the first movement in this is, is that Jesus and the disciples are separated. They're apart. And the second movement in this story is that Jesus appears, reveals himself to the disciples in John 6, 19 through 20. When they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. The trip to Bethesda and to Capernaum, which is what the trip is, is about six miles by sea. You could also walk it by land as well, too. Uh, that's a pretty reasonable thing to do. And I don't know if you've ever rode six miles before. I'm like, that's not so far. Have you ever done it? <laughs> like, I'm out at a quarter mile. <laughs> I've had enough. <laughs> right? And so they were told, right? And, and we're told in the middle of that they're, they're three to four miles into this journey. So they're about halfway right in the middle of this journey. They're not in the middle of the lake, by the way. This, that's not how big the lake is. But this is the journey in which... So they're three to four miles in this journey. And Matthew and Mark tell us that it is in the fourth watch, which means it's between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And it started off in the evening. So they have been at this, struggling against this storm for at least six hours, maybe more. Six hours of rowing? No way. And here's the thing, I don't, you also, if you're rowing correctly, right, you have your back to where you're going. And you're looking for where you come. And here they are, they have their back where they're going, they're rowing. And then the, the wind is coming out, and so they don't see where they're going. All they see is where they come from, and they're not making good progress at all. That is not encouraging. That is discouraging. You keep seeing, like, why are we not getting farther away? Why is this so hard? Yet they keep doing it. They are exhausted, they are overwhelmed, and they're only halfway through the storm. Then Jesus shows up. Jesus appears. And Jesus reveals himself. He's walking on the water. In the storm. And here's the thing. Like they just struggled for six plus hours to row those three or four miles. And he's catching up to them walking. That wouldn't be encouraging either. Like, are you kidding me? Jesus is unbothered by the storm. He knows it's there. It's not like, oh, there's a storm. Like, he knows there's a storm. He's not bothered by the storm. I mean, this is, this is, once again, Moses parting the Red Sea kind of thing. Miraculously crossing a body of water and providing a way. This is what Jesus does. Unbothered by the storm, unbothered by the circumstances around him. I want you to hear this very clearly. Jesus is unbothered by your circumstance. Whether it's your responsibility or not. Whether you've created your circumstance or not, it's not throwing him for a loop. 
Jesus is unbothered by your trials. Jesus is not shaken by your sin. I think some of us need to hear that very loudly in our lives. Jesus knows your brokenness. He knows the depths of your depravity. He knows that you don't seek him, that you don't love him. And I think some of us need to hear this very clearly. We, we sang a song about it. He's a good, good father, right? Look at this is how good he is. He knows the brokenness in you. He knows of your hatred and your, your desires that wander away from that don't even think about him. And he loves you. He's not thrown by the sin. He's not like, that's it. You're going to treat me that way? I'm out. He loves you. He adores you. He loves you so much that you're the beloved, that he's willing to lay down his life and die for you and take all your sin upon him. Man, I think we need to hear that over and over again. He is not bothered by your sin. Yes, he doesn't like it. He doesn't throw him for a loot. He's not shaken by it. He can deal with your sin, he can deal with you and your circumstances. There is nothing outside of his providence. And there is nothing outside of his love. Nothing is too much. There's nothing he doesn't know. And he will deal with it all. Now, one of the privileges of being a pastor is um, people come to me. And most times people don't come to me with great news. Like, I got great news. I need to share it with the pastor, right? You just share it with everyone. But when people like, I want to meet with you, like, I need to share something really hard with you. It's, it is a privilege, and I, I enjoy, I mean, whatever that word means, I enjoy that it's hard times for you or things are terrible, but it's a privilege just to be in that moment. There is a joy to be in a moment with someone like that, and I honor it. But look at, I want you to make it here very clearly. I do not have the answers I mean, sometimes I think I have the answers, and I might give you some advice, and sometimes it might work out or not. But here's what I, I know I can do, is I can sit with you. I can listen to you. I can try to understand. And maybe together, in that storm, we can find Jesus together. Maybe with a, a couple extra set of eyeballs that we can look together. They saw him, and they were frightened. Fearful, that word is, 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 is phobia, right? Which we know, right? It's fearful, frightened, and rightfully so. People don't walk on water. And when they do, man, I'm going to question that they have some abilities and power that I don't have, and I'm going to tread softly with them. But they're in the midst of the storm as well. They're exhausted. They're at their end of their rope. And what does Jesus say? In the text, it says, his, it is I. And it, the way it's translated, that's a perfectly ordinary way to translate it. But look, at, I want you to understand what John does. John uses this phrase over and over again. It's this ego imi, which is I am. Which is, it's, a, it's an extra emphasis on I. You don't need to say uh, the ego, which is the I, because the imi implies the I. So normally you say I am, you would say imi. All right, that's your Greek lesson of the day. Forget you just heard that because that was really obnoxious for me to say that. Right, but here's the point. John does it over and over again. We have the I am statements. And here again, essentially what Jesus say, is saying is, I am. Do not be afraid. 
And this word I am, right, this is, this is God's name. This is Yahweh. This is the tetragrammaton. This is God's Yahweh, which is another fancy word. And this word has, we could study this word for a lifetime. That God reveals himself in, in Exodus 3.14. God says to Moses, when Moses said, who should I tell them who you are? And he says, I am who I am. And basically what that name is, one way to look at that name is God saying is, I am, or, or he is. This uses both the uh, second person and the first person in his name. I am, and he, which basically God says, look, I want you to understand, I am the real one, and everything else is a shadow in comparison to me, is not. Is not. And Jesus is making this pronouncement, says, I am the I am. I am God. And so in the, as he's walking on the water, he's trying to confirm them just like he did in the feeding of the 5,000. I am. Do not be afraid. I am God. Which, listen, what do you mean? How am I not supposed to be afraid of that? Why wouldn't I be afraid of God? A whole testament is filled with telling you that the proper fear is the fear of God. Beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Like we should be fearful of God. Isaiah 41 uh, 4 says this Who has performed and done this calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and the last. I am he, the Alpha and the Omega. I am he, God says. And here is Jesus evoking that phrase. I am. Do not be afraid. It's the most common command in the New Testament. Do not be afraid. I don't, let's, let's not like settle like, oh, that's interesting. Man, why is that the most common because we are taught that we ought to fear God and only God. And this God is like, I want you to understand, yes, you ought to fear me, right? Matthew 10, 28. And, we, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Right? Jesus is telling us, like, yeah, you're right. Do not fear anything else in this world but fear God. But in the midst of this kind of language, he says, I want you to understand, I love you. I love you. You do not need to fear. I'm for you, not against you. I've got a plan and a purpose for you. I've got a reason for all this. I've got a reason for this storm. Do you trust me? Do you know me? Do not fear me. Jesus appears to them. He appears and reveals himself to them. Look at Jesus appears to you and I. He's revealing himself to you and I because he loves us. Because he wants to be known. And he knows that there's something broken in us and, and he's the one that can fix it. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of the storm or the circumstance. Do not be afraid of the one who is going to mend and fix all things. Jesus appears to disciples. He reveals himself. Jesus appears to us, and he reveals to us. And the last movement is that Jesus is received by the disciples. In John 6, 21, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Here's the interesting thing. Glad is a weird translation for that word. 
You'll understand why they did it in a moment, but I just, the, the literal translation of that word is desire or choose, will or want. It goes back to that, right back to the beginning, right? right? So they, they chose, they wanted him. They desired him to be in the boat. That's what it's saying. There was separation. And now we're saying, yeah, come on in. You are the one we want. You are the one we desire. They were separated. They were unsure. Jesus revealed something about himself. That chooser in them, that desire in them, they begin to be fixed a little bit. That's not totally, because we see that they have a hard time understanding and grasping this concept. Like, But I get it. You need to repeat things to me over and over and over again for me to really register with it. Particularly a biggest concept that Jesus is God. And you could understand how the disorienting that could be to people, and particularly to disciples. But Jesus begins to fix something in them. Jesus reveals his presence to them in the storm, who he was, and their desire was radically changed. And then I want you to hear, there was another miraculous event that just happened. It wasn't just Jesus walked on water in the storm. There is this word here, immediately. And this word immediately is not just like, hey, and the next thing happened. No, it means like, this happened right now. In the midst of the storm, halfway through it, they desired him. They want him in the boat. They desired him. They wanted him. They chose him. And the next thing, the storm was done and they were on the other side. It doesn't tell how they processed that moment. It doesn't say, hey, what just happened? None of that. All we know is that that happened for them. All of this is to fill the prophecy of Jesus. All of this is the point to Jesus, right? To say all this, this glad, all this, all this text that's given to us that we may miss a little bit. It's the point to who Jesus is. I mean, if you have a Bible, uh, I'll have it on the screen, but it's going to be small. Uh, Psalm 107. I think of this is before uh, Jesus. Psalm 107, 2330. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord. That's, the, that's Yahweh right there, that capital L, L or D. His wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melt away in their evil plight. Anyone identifying with this at the moment? They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. It doesn't take that much for me to get at my wits' end, by the way. They, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to the desired haven. How interesting. Brought them to desired haven. Now here's the thing about this psalm. Is I don't think the people in this psalm or you and I, right, we have a desired destination in our lives. It's not where Jesus brings us. 
Because in the midst of that journey with him, he changes the desire. And then he brings us to that desire. He changes because he, like, hey, this is the destination, right? And oftentimes we as Christians, we just talk about, hey, I just want to get to heaven. And then I want to see all my family and friends. Like, yeah, okay, great. That's great. I don't, I don't want to minimize that at all. Pierce, I don't want to minimize that. That's not the desired location. That's not our desired haven. Jesus being present with him is our desired haven. It, but this, this whole passage talks about the separation, and now they're together. This journey across the sea was just to begin to symbolize. Wasn't it that important to get to Capernaum? What's important is are you with Jesus? Are you with God? Because he is the desired haven in our life. He is the goal and the destination. He is the provision. In the storms, right, our desire is it for it to be over. I don't like suffering. I want it to be done. And Jesus is teaching us in the midst of all that, I want your desire to be for me. The storm will be over eventually. But I want your desire to be me no matter what the circumstance is. To understand who I am. That I'm the one who can walk in the water in the midst of the storm. That I can command the waves and the wind and everything else. Jesus, a desired haven. We are being called and we are being transformed to desire him. Day in and day out. God is fixing our heart. You and I are here because we have already begun, perhaps, to smell God's compelling delight in our lives. This, this incredible aroma that makes cinnamon buns seem like carrots. Nothing wrong with carrots. But they're not cinnamon buns. There's nothing There's nothing. There's nothing inherently wrong with the things of this world, but they're nothing like God. You and I have gotten a taste of the goodness and the sweetness of Jesus. And if you haven't, my prayer is that maybe today you begin to. And this is the first time you've smelled it. God's pleasing aroma, the goodness and sweetness in his love. And when we get that aroma and that smell, man, we want more. We want more and more. We desire more of it. And here's the thing, when we desire God, we will, we will be satisfied. We will be satisfied in him. This craving that you have for God or for the eternal or for something more than all this isn't made up. It isn't imaginary. This is something that you have smelt before. This is a pleasing aroma that you have experienced before or maybe you're experiencing it for the first time. This is nothing you created. This is God's gift to you to remind you to pull you back. That he's present. That he's true. That he's trustworthy. And that he loves you. If you have that desire, it's because God gave it to you. That God has begun to work on your heart. 
It's a desire that is foreign to all of us. And it's unknown to. We heard it in Romans 3. Because you and I have settled and will settle again for lesser joys. Joys nonetheless. But lesser joys. Not the greater joy. Not the joy of knowing and being together with God. Being united with him. The gospel is that God has done this for you. He has given you this desire. He has given you this pleasing aroma in your life. He's given you this understanding that he is the good one, that he is the provision, that he is the desire to haven. He's given us the ability to choose him. And what ought we to do in that moment? Give him thanks and praise for that gift. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's what I want for you today and tomorrow, and the next day. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Brothers and sisters, may you smell, deeply inhale the sweet aroma of God's goodness and his love for you. That aroma of Jesus. May God grow your desire in him more and more today. Satisfy your hunger and feast on him. Be with him. In the storm, in the calmness, be with him. Because he is with you, whether you see it or not. Spend time with him. Spend time in his word, in the scriptures. It's one of the ways that I love spending time with God. It's one of the ways I really only connect with him is when I'm in his word. It's just how I'm wired. Spend time with his bride. As much as he loves you, look to the person right and left and forward and back of you. He loves them too. He adores them too. I, mean, I, know, I know you may not, but he does. Spend time with his bride. His church. May God grow your desire for him and for his bride and for each other. I read Psalms uh, 107, and the last two verses I left out are this, 31 32. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. That's why we gather together, to remember these truths of who he is and what he's done. And as a, as a body together, brothers and sisters, the bride, to praise him and thank him for what he has done in us and for us and for our neighbor. To remind each other. Just like I say, when people come to me and I like, hey, I can sit with you in the storm and maybe I can help. We can find Jesus together in the midst of this. You could do that too. With each other. I have no special gift in that capacity. Hear it clearly. This is the God that knows that you and I are separated. And this is the God who reveals himself. He doesn't stay hidden because he knows we need to see him. He knows that he is the provision and the provider. And this is the God that changes our desires that changes what we 
want the most. And this is the God that satisfies all those desires. Let us pray. Gracious Father, loving Lord, your truth and your word are overwhelming at times. I'm so easily distracted by the circumstances and the moments in this world and the storms in my life and the people around me and in this world and the brokenness, Lord. And it's hard to look past. It's easy to rationalize. Lord, I, I ask you to remind me again and the people of this church, remind me again today and tomorrow that sweet aroma of the goodness of who you are. I know I'm afraid. I know tomorrow will bring new fears in me. I thank you, the God, that you are a God who reveals. And that you are a God that tells me not to be afraid because you are the one that's trustworthy. You are the one that's faithful. And you love me. And you love everyone here. Lord, I thank you for the gift of, the, of a changed heart, of a changing heart, of, of, of your Holy Spirit that is working in, day in and day out, through all of us. Lord, help us, help us to see those around us that are in the storm. Help us to sit with each other, to row with each other. Help us to, to look for you, because we know you are there. And you, we know that you are going to get us to the desired haven, which is you, with you, which means it could be right now. I pray this, Lord. I pray this right now. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.